Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of What Know You Explain, the show where I have guests on to share their weird and interesting facts and stories. Some may call it me offloading my job onto my friends and colleagues, but I have not yet found an argument against that. My name is Braden Thorvalton, and I am your host. My first guest is the host of A Conversation with a Friend, an interview podcast in which I had the honor to recently be on. He's a good listener, an excellent interviewer, and overall lovely human being. This is Daver Kermani. Say hi, Daver. Hi, Daver. <laughs> there we are. Listen to instructions. Lovely. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Excited to get this started. So I suppose without any particular further ado, we'll get to the, you know, plugs of a conversation with a friend towards the end. But I hear you've brought us a story. Uh, yes. Um, actually, um, uh, I've always been fascinated with items that turned out to be something else or ideas that turned into other situations. And the thing that stuck out to me was Febreze. Uh-huh. Uh, for those that don't know, Febreze is like a billion dollar <laughs> product right now. However, it started off as a complete and total failure. <laughs> and the story behind it is quite interesting because in 1993, a scientist was working with hydroxyl propyl B- beta as psychodextrin. Oh, that one. That one, right, that one. Mm -hmm. Right, yes, exactly. H-P-B-C-D. And uh, he got home to his wife, and his wife thought that he had stopped smoking. And he was like, and this this was a chain smoker. And he said, nope, I have not stopped smoking. And he realized that his experiments had caused it so that the odor from... His clothes had com- been completely eliminated. Uh, at that time, in 1993, this turned into a great idea, and P&G, the company that he was working for, decided, to, hey, let's try and turn this into something. So they spent millions of dollars over the next three years turning Febreze into the product that it was. And in 1996, they started marketing it out, and they presented it as literally um, a tool for your clothes and stuff where you would spray it on there and suddenly you wouldn't smell. And they marketed it that way and put it into the stores in that way. And lo and behold, it didn't sell. <laughs> and they started questioning why it isn't the selling because millions of dollars went into this. And uh, Drake Simpson, the marketer behind it, was very, very stressed out because you know, he felt like his career was on the line. Uh, upon doing some market research into it all, they realized that people that smell bad don't actually know that they smell bad because they're consumed in it. So <laughs> by, go- <laughs> yep, by going around to um, people with a lot of cats and noticing the odors there and realizing they didn't notice it and going around to people that smoked and realizing, hey, they're used to that smell. Uh, they, they started thinking that, hey, this product is a failure until they finally found a customer that bought their product and they started questioning why is this person buying that product and as as it turns out they used to use febreze at the end of when they were cleaning things just in the air to get rid of the scent and this turned into a aha moment where over the next two years they started remarketing and rebranding febreze from being a fabric cleaner to being an air freshener as we know it as today <laughs> and now it's a billion dollar product and I, I, I love the story because it's you know it's just 
a change in perspective can cause such a big difference in success. That is spectacular. And I had no idea. Thank you so much for bringing that to me. I would say as somebody who has, well, a dog and a cat now, believe me, there's a fair amount of Febrezing going on because, uh, <laughs> well, occasionally the dog gets into something and the cat needs to poop indoors. Ooh. Oh, does the cat need to poop indoors? <laughs> but I would say, again, I might have missed this as a beginning, but what was he experimenting on that made, like, that he was just, like, desperately trying that somehow he ended up with an odor eater? Uh, they were just playing around with that chemical and trying to find out uh, purposes and uses for it. Okay. Uh, that's my understanding of it. <laughs> no, fair. So they just had, all right, we've got a barrel of this. Let's Let's use it. For something, maybe. <laughs> we can't drink much. it. We can't drink it. And Daver, never let it be said that I'll let you leave empty-handed. I've got a story for you. Woo! <laughs> uh, this one I'm gonna this one I'm gonna take us back to the question mark good old days of the Cold War, which is unfortunately getting a lot more prescient nowadays. Uh right now it's kind of around the era of kind of the early to mid-1960s, where there's sort of a clandestine sort of like air race between the United States and the Soviet Union. Not necessarily in terms of like, can they get, you know, basically, can they fly? Everyone can. Thing is, they wanted something that could fly stealthily and fast because the United States wanted to get, you know, some more up-to-date information and Soviet intel. Because at that point, the... Basically, for the vast majority of the Soviet Union, the best pictures the United States had at the time were taken during World War II, which was over 15 years ago. And they just couldn't necessarily get a spy plane over to kind of, well, basically further off into Russia, because A, Russia's a massive country, and B, Russia has very, very good radar, or rather the Soviets have very, very good radar. So they ended up sort of developing kind of a skunk works just off of, um, well, actually technically in Area 51 in Nevada. And they tried to build something called the Lockheed A-12, which was theoretically supposed to be able to break up to, I believe it was five times the speed of sound and be nigh on invisible to radar so long as you stayed above 60,000 feet. The problem was that took a lot of metal to build specifically titanium. It was difficult back then to buy loads of titanium without somebody, either an American company or, you know, a Soviet spy, trying to figure out, hey, what are they doing with these 60 tons of titanium? So initially they needed to start, you know, getting a little sneakier about it. So they ended up, the United States government ended up going through a bunch of shell corporations, buying up pretty much all the titanium in the United States, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> so they ended up having to go elsewhere and take a guess as to which country ended up inadvertently being the single largest supplier of titanium to the United States to build their secret prototype airplanes to beat the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union. Because, uh, again, at this point, it was the, like, this turned into a CIA issue. Because, basically, it was, 
either a CIA operative flying them or it was an Air Force pilot flying them, depending on whether the emphasis was a bit more on spying or flying, so to speak. So the CIA had a pretty vested interest in this as well. So basically, the CIA ended up using their full-on, you know, I would say blank check, black budget market, and ended up using a bunch of third parties and dummy companies. And they managed to sort of like purchase a lot of titanium base metal from the Soviet Union. A lot of the Russian companies just thought, great, we are making money off of this metal from just like another company. They didn't necessarily... um think, per se, that the metal was going to be immediately somehow smuggled into the United States to be used to build a Lockheed A-12. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so that's one of the things of, oh, the CIA wasn't just about, you know, dosing people with uh, horrifyingly large amounts of drugs. <laughs> and, you know, waterboarding, but I digress. But, so, on that note, Daver... I have, I would say, again, we're starting to play a bit of a game here, or at the least, mm-hmm. you know, in our first episode, we are going to try a play game. It's a pretty easy one. It's called Two Truths and a Lie. Ooh. I am going to read you three statements based off a category of your choice, and you tell me which two are the truth and which one is the lie. Because two of these are facts that I actually did sort of debate into turning into episodes, but I couldn't really extend it out to the full 10 minutes. And one of them is carefully curated lies. So I'll give you the choice of three for the first one. Let's do this. Would you like this to be about death and dying, nature or facts of the world? Um, let's go with death or dying. <laughs> death and dying. Okay. All right. Death and dying. All right. Statement one. A survey of funeral directors in the United Kingdom found that the most frequently requested song to play at funerals is Always Look on the Bright Side of Life by Monty Python from Life of Brian. It barely beat out Frank Sinatra's My Way. <laughs> oh, well, believe me, it, it gets better. Statement number two. An American man by the name of Michael Lobnitz holds the record for the most times being successfully resuscitated after being declared dead. Lobnitz an electrician from Decatur, Illinois, has been resuscitated nine times over his career, with the first brush of death happening due to a misplaced ground wire in a house he was working at. He credits his surprising longevity to his wife, Francine, a certified first aid responder. And statement number three. A man by the name of Steady Ed Hedrick invented the Frisbee in the 1950s and went on to create the sport of disc golf in the 1970s. When he died in 2002, his final wish was to have his ashes turned into a Frisbee. Uh, (laughs) When asked... Um, Oh, believe me, we're not done. When asked, his son said it was his father's dream that they play with him after death and that he might even accidentally end up on someone's roof. (laughs) So, Daver, what do you think? Which one do you think's the lie? Uh, The first one. Well, what makes you think the one's a lie? I don't know. Those songs just don't sound very deadly to me. <laughs> no, would you believe? Number one is 100% true. Uh, now that you've said it, yes. <laughs> one is 100% true. Oh, good God. It's number two that's the lie. Oh. There's even a guy named Steady Ed Hedrick who created the Frisbee. <laughs> Isn't it great? Okay, well. Isn't the world great? Yes, yes. Go Steady Ed. All right, so. All right, 0 for 1, but there's still time, Diver. All right, let's do this. All right, so. 
We've got nature. We've got facts of the world. And you know what? Let's throw in the history. Okay, let's do facts of the world. <laughs> of the world. Facts of the world. All right, number one. South Koreans are on average four centimeters taller than North Koreans. A researcher from Sung Kyung Wan University in Seoul found that North Koreans are four centimeters shorter on average than South Koreans, pointing to malnourishment, economic stagnation, and lack of immigration as reasons for the difference. That hurts my soul. <laughs> oh, no. All right. Number two. The IKEA catalog is the most printed book in the world. With more than 200 million copies in circulation every year, the IKEA catalog surpasses the Bible, the Quran, and the Harry Potter series to earn the title of the world's most printed book. Hmm. The annual catalogs are usually around 350 pages and vary in each of the 72 regions in which it's distributed. All right, and statement number three. There is, in fact, a fourth pyramid designed in the Great Pyramids of Giza. Archaeologists found tablets in 1947 that detailed plans for a fourth pyramid, but the sheer number of slaves that died due to exposure to the elements and overwork after the first three caused the plans to be scrapped. So, Dabber, which one of these do you think is the lie? I, I think it's... I think... It's number one or two, but I'm going to lean towards two. That just doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, no, believe me, that took me a second too. But honestly, I would say it's actually true. Seriously? Every Holy yep, absolutely. <laughs> I'm so bad at this game. <laughs> oh, it's all good. Listen, believe me, this took a lot of editing for me to even figure out. Holy smokes. In fact, there is no fourth pyramid of Giza. It's just only three. I believe just the that. Three. <laughs> I feel like I've seen that in the movie. That's probably oh. why. <laughs> you know, I th it sounds like it might be. It sounds like it might be a mummy thing or a national treasure thing. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, Daver, for the last one, I would say for honor, see if you can get on the board here. You've got nature, you have history, and you have morality. Nature, history, or morality? Morality. Let's do this. <laughs> okay. All right. The traditional fantasy story, popularized in the Western world by the legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, were spread initially to distract kids and teenagers from bad behavior. They were published in such great number to teach impressionable youth and teenagers the value of chivalry, honesty, and chastity most of all, in the hopes that the tales of these honorable knights would either influence or distract impressionable youth from immoral behaviors and reduce the levels of teenage pregnancy at the time. <laughs> Number two. The first roller coaster was designed for the express purposes of distracting people from immoral activities. The inventor, Lamarcus Thompson, was disgusted by the debauchery of New York's inhabitants. The saloons and brothels that were so popular in the late 1800s were a disgrace to Thompson, who wanted to provide a family-friendly, sin-free way to have fun. Thus, the roller coaster was born. He was inspired by the railroad tracks of the West, specifically one called the Mouch Chunk Switchback Railway, which featured a high-speed 665-foot drop. Statement number three. And Daver, this is... This hits close to my heart. <laughs> Cornflakes were created with the express purpose to stop masturbation. The inventor of cornflakes, Dr. John Carvey Kellogg, believed that highly seasoned meats, stimulating sauces, and dainty tidbits in endless variety can irritate the nerves and react upon the sexual organs. 
This, Kellogg believed, led many people down the road to sin, particularly regarding sex and masturbation. To combat this, you know, meat and dainty tidbit-based sexual arousal, he created the blandest food he could, cornflakes, as a solution to this problem. Sadaver, considering what you've just heard over the last couple minutes, <laughs> what seems like the lie? Honestly, number three does, but I'm going to go with number one. <laughs> ding, 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 Mr. Kermani, you are on the board. You Yay. are on the board. I always go against your instincts. <laughs> the Knights of the... <laughs> I mean, I guess if that's the one thing we take out of this, <laughs> go against your instincts. <laughs> yep, I was just going to say, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table were not published to stop teenage pregnancy, but cornflakes were indeed created with the express purpose to stop masturbation. Yes, actually, I knew about the roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult to get handsy with somebody when you are going down basically a 90 degree drop. <laughs> So true. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, Lord. Although we really shouldn't knock it till we try it, right? No, that's how you go. No, that's how you die, Daver. That's how you fly off a that's how you fly off one and die. Woo. Oh, okay. Lord. Never mind. That's good. <laughs> I guess well, this is I mean, the death the category. The Calgary Stampede. Exactly. It's in morality for a reason. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, Daver. Thank you very much for coming on. But let's talk a little bit more about your podcast, which I just had the honor of being on. A conversation with a friend. What's your elevator pitch for it? Uh, elevator pitch for it is, um, I believe that people nowadays um, struggle to have genuine conversations with people, whether it's because they're too stuck on their own views or they are not willing or being willing on being open enough with the people around them and scared of judgment. And a conversation with a friend is literally that. It's two people sitting together and having a conversation with each other, uh, taking the conversation wherever they want to, discussing life's, <laughs> life's wonders, and just enjoying each other's companies. It's open, it's genuine, and it's supposed to be judgment-free, but it's still open dialogue. So it's what I hope people can do in their normal lives. Oh, no, that's lovely. And honestly, I... I, I can honestly say that it was a very enjoyable experience. It honestly basically just starts with sort of like them introducing yourself and you are a very active listener in that like, okay, you've talked about this. Let's follow up with that a little bit. And even before I knew it, it was like, oh, that was an hour and 40 minutes. It did not feel like long at all. And <laughs> I'm all very caught up with you. And you have a way of sort of like getting people to let their guard down a little bit. I mean, that's not necessarily quite like your intent, like you're never like a full on like, ha, we got you. But <laughs> like you have a bunch of like a lot of, I'd say probably some of your guests are a little bit more guarded than others, but they all seem like considerably more relaxed kind of towards the end. And I think that's just a sign of a good interviewer. Oh, thank you, Mr. B. I think you're a pretty good interviewer yourself. <laughs> well, I have a grand total of one episode under my belt. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, I would say, again, a conversation I, with a friend, I highly recommend. And really, if you're just looking for open conversation about sort of like career-based things or just a wide variety of topics and just sort of continues on towards sort of like the deeper sort of topics, again, 100% recommend. I'll put the 
I'll put the link to the show in the show notes. Yeah, I would just say thank you so much for coming on, Daver. It's very much appreciated. I'll say again, I'll have you on again. You were a delight to play this with. And my God, I'll never look at Febreze the same way again. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me on. Honestly, it was fun remembering that story and looking up the actual facts behind it. So I, I really appreciate it, Brayden. Like, uh, you're doing an awesome job. I love your episodes. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're very... Well, this has now just turned into us congratulating each other. So thank you very much, Daver. All right, and have a good <laughs> evening, everyone. We'll talk to you all later. All right, bye. Bye.